From off-off Broadway's Cafe Chino in the 1960s to Broadway theaters today, our guest has been responsible for some of the most provocative and fascinating works of the past several decades, including Marco Polo Sings a Solo, the musicals Two Gentlemen of Verona and Sweet Smell of Success, the Lighty Breeze plays, Four Baboons Adoring the Sun, A Few Stout Individuals, and Six Degrees of Separation. The just-ended Broadway season saw both revival of his 40-year-old The House of Blue Leaves and his newest work, A Free Man of Color. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I am very pleased to meet John Guare. I know your face. I've seen you around. You're no, you don't have to say you're clear to me. Yes, I well, know. Well, it's certainly you. going to be the longest we've ever spoken. Let's, let's put it that way. Um, as I said in that introduction, it's been 40 years since the premiere of The House of Blue Leaves. Do you feel that the play is viewed differently each time it receives a major production? Certainly the New York productions, we have 71, we have 86, and now. The major change was between the 1971 and the 1986 revival. I never go see productions of my plays other than after the original production. But I was in Times Square and I started going around the zipper, the Times building with the news, that the Pope was shot. Now, my first thought was, what will this do to my play, House of Blue Leaves? Because if you realize one of the key elements in it is the young man wants to blow up the Pope to get his – just to be noticed, to get some attention in the world. And people had always said, oh, the play is so kooky. Where do you get these ideas? It's just so wacky, wacky. And I was curious what this dose of reality would do to my play. I knew the play was running by chance up at Great Barrington, the Berkshire Theatre Festival. And so I went up the next day to see it, just to see what this attempted assassination on the Pope's side, where somebody had acted out something from my play to do, although I don't know his reasons for doing it. And what was extraordinary about it was if a glass wall that had existed previously between the play and the audience shattered and the stage lifted up and the audience lifted up and they came together in one trough, right, at, uh, together. It was as if the dose of reality cut the wackiness out of the play hmm. and made the play uh, be perceived in a totally different way. This young man's need to be famous was no longer just saying, well, what a kooky, wacky idea, was now into reality. And it just grounded the play in a way that the laughter was entirely different in the play from that dreadful historical event. I'm not saying thank God for it, but it really, you know, plays belong to their times and historical events can somehow crush a play or, you know, or, or date a play or just – this made the play uh, – it gave the play an immediacy from which I feel that it has not lost. There have frankly been lots of events, the idea of somebody wanting to murder someone to gain fame. We had certainly the attempt on Reagan's life That's by right. somebody who wanted to impress Jody Foster. Yeah. Yeah. So with the wackiness gone, what probably was inconceivable when the show first premiered, mm-hmm. nobody would try such a thing. Yeah. Where do you get such ideas, not, people but, but said? But not even – but clearly, I mean, sadly, you can say you were ahead of your time in conceiving that such a thing might even be thought of. But as you said, the play isn't as wacky. It is grounded. And so it has become something else. No, it became what it wanted to be. Really? They were wacky. I wasn't. Huh. Well, when you say it's what it wanted to be, in other words, that – 
in the original production, it was so inconceivable to people that they could look at it as absurd and believing that no one would ever do this. That's right, and that upset me. Hmm. I mean, that that I thought, that really used to bother me. I mean, that was, I would grit my teeth when people say, oh, where do you get these ideas from? I said, they're there waiting to be, they're there, they're there. I mean, I just felt that the wackiness made people not look at the intensity of the people, the actors, the, the characters' emotions in the play. Was there ever a desire on your part to change the script as a result? Of what? As a result of the reality intruding I didn't on have the to hmm. because the reality had happened. So it just becomes a different the artifact. It, the audience changed. The play right. didn't have to, yes. Interesting. Now, what about directors? Each time you see certainly major revivals, you said you don't go to yeah. see lots of productions yeah. of plays, but major Very much revivals, so. Very I much so. assume you're involved in. So how do you decide who you – would like to have do your plays or how do you agree to someone who is proposed to direct say sometimes, House of Blues? sometimes it's a crapshoot sometimes it's based on people's work mm-hmm. i know i once asked lanford wilson i was looking for a director and i said how do you pick a director lanford and he said very easily so i just give them a copy of my play and then i ask him to read it and then when we meet i say tell me the story of my play and if the story that this director gets out of my play vaguely <laughs> coincides with the story I'm trying to tell in my play, I know we can at least begin to talk. Hmm. I know that House of Rulies originally, Mel Shapiro, was uh, very heavily recommended. He had done some productions at the Guthrie, and I met Mel, and I just loved him. His understanding of the play was was wonderful. And so I had had trouble finding directors for the play. People wanted to make it very naturalistic and wanted me to make changes in the play that were just, you know, were... Uh, either very commercial, you know, change the ending, people shouldn't die at the end, or making it very naturalistic, wanting to give the characters more uh, backstory, which I wasn't interested in, hmm. very, making it very naturalistic. And so I, I dropped them. And sometimes I lost friends along the way. Those directors stopped being friends. Hmm. Then in 1986, when we did the revival at Lincoln Center, I know that uh, Jerry Zachs was doing a production of a Chris Durang play at uh, the Public Theater, The Marriage of Bet and Boo, which I just loved. I just loved I that I share production. that love with you. So I went to see Jerry, and then Jerry did that, and it turns out he had directed the play or been in it at Dartmouth. And then David Cromer, who has directed a number of my plays in uh, Chicago and uh, who was just a fascinating guy and the work of his that I've seen, I loved The Adding Machine and I loved Our Town. So when Scott Rudin said, I, I would like David Cromer to direct The House of Blue Leaves, I said, on board, because I wanted to know what story he would tell of my, in my play. So that was going to be my next question is when you have directors revisiting a play of yours uh-huh. – do they actually show you things about your play in different ways? Do they tell the story in a new way? Well, it's not actors. It's not just the director. It's mm-hmm. the actors. The new ca- Every time you change, every time you have a new cast in a play, the actors are asking, are asking different stories. Yes, I mean, the choices that an Edie Falco, who is brilliant, will make as bananas, are quite different. Than the choices the brilliant Susie Kurtz would make, which were different from the choices that Catherine Hellman would make. It's just they each brought a different music to the play. Hmm. That's why I love working in the theater is that you get to see 
you see the glory of actors. I mean, I love actors. I love what they and the music that they bring to a role. Yeah, just as simple as that. The comparison to music is it like you've got a different orchestra and a different conductor playing the same piece of music? Is that no? No, because the roles have certain parameters, Mm -hmm. you know, that you have to contain. And so all those actors, Catherine Hellman and Susie Kurtz and Edie Falco, all are capable of playing the role of bananas. They all share the ability. But their coloration, they just each have different colors. For example, I mean, Susie, the horror of her life made her literally turn into a dog. She just was no longer human. She, that's what was so shocking about it. She just became a dog. She was hilarious. She just became a dog. Mm-hmm. And Edie Falco and Catherine Hellman originally played it as if they had no choice but to be a dog, <laughs> hmm. that their humanity had – they were fighting for their humanity. They just – it was hanging on to something. All the three actors played it with – their desperation took them to certain choices that uh, read in different ways to uh, different effect, but all within the terms of the story that I was telling, that the play is telling. Hmm. I was very surprised to find – that the story about the producer coming to visit from Hollywood and the boy thinking this is going to be his audition for Huckleberry Finn yes. is true. Word for word. Tell me. It, well, word for word, I guess you don't have to tell me, but you actually experienced this. Yes, my uncle was a monster by the name of Billy Grady who was head of casting at MGM from 34 to 56. And uh, he made stars. He was the one he created. He, When he was an agent in the 20s, he represented people like Will Rogers and W.C. Fields and Al Jolson. He's and, also the guy who famously said of Fred, Fred Astaire, Astaire, balding, uh, can't sing, can dance can a little. Can dance a little. But can, yes. And uh, he said that – yeah, that was his uh, first report on Fred Astaire. But he did find Jimmy Stewart in, you know, in a small show and built mm. his career like that. He found people. And anyway, he – we hadn't seen it. My mother hadn't seen him in a long time. And he had cast Elizabeth Taylor through a trick in National Velvet that's too complicated to go into. And then he cast uh, Claude Jarman Jr. in this, the, the Yearling, which was a big triumph. And the next year he was going to – find the biggest he was going to find the ideal american boy huckleberry finn to play in a movie with gene kelly and danny Kay, the duke and the dolphin and it was hmm. going to be and he went all over the country looking for kids and he came to new york and he said to my mother he said i'm going crazy he said i walk you know the chambermaid's wheel well as it says in the, in the house of reliefs and he said just let me come out and hide out and stay with you and i thrilled that he was actually coming that i would man that everybody wanted to see was coming to stay with me, with us. And I decided I would get the part. That it was just fate. I was eight, not 12 in the, in the play, but I was eight years old. And I packed and I planned to go out. And I did. We had a, we lived in a, we had a, what they called a drop living room. It had two, it was like a little stage. There were two steps down like, to the living room when you came in. There was a foyer with the two steps down. And he was sitting there, Johnny, come out, Johnny. And this is your Uncle Billy. And Bill, and he was there and I just started singing. I did things I've never done. Well, just read the play. <laughs> and, he, and he said the line in the play. 
and left and didn't speak to my parents, you know, for about 10 years because he thought it was a setup. Hmm. And uh, yes, so it was. Uh, and the know. movie never got made, did it? And the movie never got made. You they see, could never find. And I always. If he'd taken you. It would be a very different story. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, no, no. But so the uh, the movie was never made, and that was my only my only triumph in it. So obviously, from a young age, you had an interest in at least performing, or in the somehow theater. conceiving. I had, my, but even, so it was the theater always. Oh, really, my my mother had two two uncles who had toured in. Had repertory companies that toured from 1880 to 1917. Well, when you say repertory companies, I saw them referred to as, as vaudeville. Yeah, they toured in vaudeville. Okay. They on vaudeville, they would have a bill. They would be they would do like tw- half hour plays. Okay. Then they would play on vaudeville. They were a little rep company. They did that about 16 plays that they could do, and they would go on tour hmm. around America, and they would come to the onset mass in the summer. Where they'd have Chris, they'd have Christmas in July because that was their time off with their, all the animals and you know and uh, yeah so that was always and that was a great romance in my life and my uncle being being in in California you know being in 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 Hollywood and the fact that his wife hated him and lived in New York six months of the year wouldn't speak to him. I, I, I didn't think anything that was odd. But she would tell us all about the stars and how awful they all were and uh, how terrible they were. And so it was just – yes, it was – and he also discovered something. He was a great figure in our lives because he discovered people. Hmm. And you waited. It was as if people had nothing to do, were powerless and waited for him to come and tap you on the shoulder and then you would be made a star. And uh, there would be – you know, my mother was always furious because there was an, an, a dancer named Eleanor Powell, and my mother hated her teeth. And <laughs> Billy signed Eleanor Powell, who had bad teeth and had her teeth fixed, an MGM's dollar. And my mother said, "See, why you do that for Eleanor Powell? Make, why doesn't he make me? Why doesn't he fix my teeth and make me a star?" And there was another actress with bad legs, and they did massage, and they just got her legs into shape. And they would shape people; they literally would shape people and own them hmm. uh, at MGM. But you were drawn to the writing more well, but you than the acting. Some, I'll tell you something. After that humiliation. I was never going to act again. That was my that was my one audition, and that was that. Hmm. So, when did you start actually writing plays? Uh, when I was eleven, I wrote three plays, and we put them on in garage out at the beach where I still go, on East Atlantic Beach. Mm-hmm. And the local paper came and uh, and did a story on an eleven-year-old playwright. And my parents gave me a typewriter for my twelfth birthday to our playwright. It said, and that was it. And I used that typewriter till I got my computer. Hmm. When you went to college, you went to Georgetown. Yeah. Not a noted theatrical school. Catholic. It was a Catholic school. <laughs> it made no difference. Yes, I didn't want to go. What to, made no difference? Where you went to college, as long as it was a Catholic college, and I didn't want to go to Catholic U. Mm-hmm. But so I went to Georgetown. But they, the first time I was the year I was there, they had a, a one act play contest, and I said, "This is a sign." I called myself a player, but I had never written it. I did, did all things in my head, and uh, then. Uh, I wrote a play. I said, well, there's my God. I remember this girl, 
there was this Asian girl, Japanese girl who was at Georgetown, and she nailed up on the tree announcement of the first annual playwriting contest. And I said, oh, this is for me. And so I wrote a play for it. It came in second because it was a comedy, a serious play had to come in first and the comedy came in second. Hmm. And uh, and I did it and then every year I wrote a play. So I wrote, you know, every year I wrote, started writing plays at, at Georgetown in my spare time. Hmm. And that was my real life. And then I, I worked at the National Theater and uh, I saw, I was once in, I was doing my senior thesis on Philip Barry, an American comedy. And I saw in the Washington Post that the uh, head, the manager of the National Theater, Scott Kirkpatrick, was looking for a young assistant to work in the theater part-time. As his present assistant had left to go to New York to try his luck as an actor, good luck Warren Beatty, literally. So I went and they said the only qualification for this job is you have to be stage-struck. And I left the Library of Congress and ran over to the uh, – National Theater, and about 200 guys waiting in line. And I got in line and I just said, I said, look, I said, you said the only requirement is you have to be stage struck. And I am, nobody's more stage struck than I am. I mean, there I mean, How do you, you prove that? I just, by saying it, by sheer, <laughs> I just said, I just, I'm just as simple as that. And then I left. And then two days later, I, I always remember this was more, I thought it was like from the gods, Moss Hart's book. Act One had just been published and I bought a copy the day it got published. And I was sitting in my room at Georgetown reading it and they said, hey, where? The whole phone I went down and uh, called for you. And it was Scott Kirkman. I had the job. Hmm. So I worked at the National Theater uh, my senior year and I just took tickets and counted the tickets and ran the check codes and ran the lost and found and sent out flyers. And I felt that I was <laughs> – a mogul. I felt I was, yes. But you got to see things, presumably. I got to see every, so every night. So what kind of things did you get to see? Oh, well, for example, that was, it was fantastic because I saw – it was great lessons seeing plays. When I first got there, the first show that was playing there when I got there was, was West Side Story and then called Gangway. And uh, there were shows like Auntie Mae with Rosalind Russell, which I went – but then there was the one show, there was a show called uh, – Time Remembered with Richard Burton, Helen Hayes, and Susan Strasberg. And it was staggering because it had a uh, – Vernon Duke wrote a score for it and it was a, a, a drama that had a 28-piece orchestra in the pit playing. It, wow. It accompanied the whole thing. It was real – and it was thrilling. And I saw that every performance. Hmm. There were things like B. Lilly did the Ziegfeld Follies. It was just magnificent. It never came into town. It was wonderful. I mean, it was, you know, Orpheus descending – uh, I was there for the first night, February 25th, 1957, the first performance hmm. of it. Uh, I remember that so vividly. So when you got out of Georgetown, I went did to you Yale apply immediately? You went immediately to Absolutely. Yale? Absolutely. Was your application these plays that you'd written for the contest every so, year? Yeah, yeah. So what was your experience at Yale in terms of – because that's really your first <laughs> well, then the, training as well, a Well, it was just heavenly. It was just – it was uh, – Yale, my life began. Also, I mean, I was at Yale. I mean, Georgia was this little, was like a high, you know, sort of like a high school, and uh, a very small class. And I was at, at Yale, and who? We, I were about six weeks or so, and who came and spoke to us? T. S. Eliot. I said, Yale is really different, and yeah, life at Yale was uh, thrilling. Hmm. The people there, there everybody. I met people. There were people there from all over the world, and people like sort of people I'd never met before. My narrow little world, 
and uh, and I just saw people who were just just writing, play, putting on plays, and it was thrilling. Hmm. And you ushered at and I Schubert ushered the Schubert Theater, and I went to saw the shows. Yes, I saw. Yes, every night I would get there and just see the show, and uh, yeah, and. You know, and it was just, and then my other friends who usher, and then we'd argue about how to fix the show. We'd argue about it, and, you know, what, what to do, you know, and uh, and it was great training somehow, you know, to see plays and say, what would you, how would you fix this play? And it was, I didn't realize it was training, but it was just, it just made us feel that we were in on, you know, we were in at the heart of things. Once you got out of Yale. Yeah. We're at a time where the regional theater movement hadn't quite really begun to hadn't pick begun, up steam. Period. Hadn't begun. Period. Hadn't. There was Broadway. Off-Broadway, as people think of it, may have been started, you know, three-penny opera. It was monumental. It was, it was like climbing Mount Everest. It was, it was, Mount, it was Kilimanjaro. It was off-Broadway. Hmm. So how did you get your work done? Where did you get it first seen? Well, I, I got drafted when I got out of the Air Force. When, when, uh, something amazing happened when I had my senior play – not senior play, you know, my third year play, my thesis play that I had to write. And through a fl- some sort of fluke, one day, uh, Audrey Wood. The agent. The agent. Uh, came, she saw my play and she signed me. So wow. when I graduated, when I got my master's from Yale, I had an agent. And well, we should say not just any an agent. agent. She was Tennessee Williams' agent. She was the agent. Yeah. And she was the famous agent who, again, found people. And strangely, it was that uh, that I called my uncle to let him know that I had been signed by Audrey Wood, whom he had known. He had known her father, hmm. uh, who had managed the palace or something. And he was very impressed. I mean, he was superfied that I had got some. And out of that, I got a job. Audrey got me a, a job. She said, I did it. She said, I'm going to get you a job out in California at Universal Pictures. And you've got to make money and support you because you have no money, which I didn't. And she said, Tennessee, I got him a job at MGM and he wrote something from Lana Turner. But while he was there, he wrote Glass Menagerie. So she said, you you will do that. Hmm. Well, I went to California and I got drafted. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah. And then in the meantime, I was looking around to get into a reserve unit before. This is just before. This is 1963, just before Vietnam. And uh, – I um, tried to get into a reserve unit. And at the same time, my uncle, who was sort of impressed that I had got this job in Universal Pictures on my own, he was now retired from MGM, got me a job at MGM. And I didn't realize it was the last death throes of Metro Golden Ware. But they were, those days, they would hire two trainees a year to work in every department of the studio to learn which department you want, you fit best in. That's mm. the way they would develop the future. So I now had a job at Universal Pictures and I had this job at MGM. Wow, Metro Golden Ware, that was always my dream <laughs> to have that. And, uh, and then I got Finally, at the last moment, I got before I was going to be drafted. About four days before I got, it was going to be drafted, I got into the Air Force Reserves for six months, and I was sent to Texas and March Air Force Base and out in the desert in California. While I was there, I hated California so much I just couldn't bear to stay there. And on a whim, I just I was going to start work at MGM the next week, and I just left. Hmm. I just left and came back to New York. So I ask again, if Off-Broadway was Kilimanjaro, how did you start to get produced? I didn't know where, what I was going to do. And I was walking around the village looking for a place to live. 
I don't know. I you know I didn't. Everybody, my life was just. I was in a new chapter of my life, and I walked down the street. I had never walked down before Cornelia Street, diagonal right off Fourth Street and Sixth Avenue, and I saw at uh, three quarters of the way up the street a little storefront that had a poster in it: "The Madness of Lady Bright." Cafe Chino. That was one of Lanford's plays. By Lanford Wilson. And I went in and it was like, I've said this before, it was like, you know, an attic in hell. I mean, it was Christmas lights and pictures of uh, Maria Callas and Jean Harlow. And uh, every corner was filled with something, a doll's Christmas ornament, you know, a moose head, whatever. It, and and people laughing and sitting around. And there was a little stage in the center. And the play, it was remarkable. And I said, you know, and then they played Vivaldi, The Four Seasons, and Sky Giochino announced, you know, and it was very swarthy Sicilian. And I said, I could fit in here. This is just in a storefront. I mean, it was sort of great. And it's all young, you know. And so I came back the next day at 6 o'clock with my plays from, from that I had written in Yale when I. Because they did mainly, they did one act then. And Joe Chino was a saint. Uh, he worked in a uh, steam presser, you know, industrial steam pressing, you know. Dry cleaning. Yeah. Dry but those industrial, you know, industrial side. side. Yeah. And he, every, over New Jersey, and he would close up shop at four, he would get off his job at four o'clock and take the ferry across and walk up to Cornelia Street and put the key in his true life, the Cafe Chino. Hmm. And uh, which had started like in 1959. And they just did play. So he was in. He was wearing a dashiki, I remember, behind the counter. And I came in at 6 o'clock and I said, I said, uh, Mr. Chino, I'm uh, – I was very polite. I said, you know, I, yeah, I said, I'm a playwright. He said, I'm not doing any plays. I'm not doing any plays at all. If you're a play, I'm sorry. No plays. I'm all booked up. I'm not doing any plays. I'm only doing plays by Aquarians. I said, huh? <laughs> I said, but I'm an Aquarian. And he said, prove it. And I took out my driver's license. And he looked. He said, February 5th, 1938. I've been waiting for you. And he took out charts. And he said, you open, start playing May 12th. Oh, and you run two. And you get a third week extension. Yes, welcome to the Chino. He didn't need to read it? No. He did lose just... Aquarius. If I'd been Taurus, I would be out in the street now. I would become a street cleaner. I would be in, in a hedge fund. I would be running a... Uh, Yes, I don't know where I would be. And that's how I started, thanks to being being born February 5th, 1938. And at the time, I mean, you already said you saw a poster for, for one of Lanford's plays. You're getting done. Sam Shepard was starting out at Cafe Chino. We all knew each other. I mean, yeah. and, then everybody, and then it was just a whole world, Theater Genesis. I once heard at Theater Genesis, uh, they were doing new plays on uh, – Monday, open night, new plays. And so I wrote a play. It was Thursday and I heard about this on Monday and I wrote a play and we opened on Monday, you know. And uh, yes, so – and then Edward Albee who was the saint of saints with the money he made from Virginia Woolf, which was an enormous blockbuster. He took that money and he uh, uh, took a lease on a theater, the Van Damme Theater and uh, from 63 to 69 – uh, he did for six months of the year a new play that uh, that was uh, 
rehearsed for three weeks. Well, you say he did. He produced, produced the show. He produced yeah. the plays with three weeks rehearsal and minimal set, but it was on a stage and uh, for five performances. And uh, and thanks to my being Audrey Wood, had rec- you know, and uh, you know, he was when he was starting. I was Audrey Wood said, so I mean that's. Hmm. I get into that. And then uh, there was this thing starting uh, called the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center and uh, up in Waterford, Connecticut. And again, George White, who was starting it, sent lists around to various people, groups doing New Dramatists and Edward Albee, you know, and people, agents, to name 20 playwrights. That, that would benefit from something like this. And they picked the 20 names that appeared the most times. And, you know, and that was, uh, I was on that list, I think, and Lanford and Sam Shepard and uh, uh, Leonard Melfi and, uh, yes, Lucy, Lucy Rosenthal, I remember. Yes, and uh, it was great. And then it all started. The and that's started. the Playwrights Conference, yeah. and that's when Lloyd came in in 66, And Lloyd then Richards. I, and then they came in 65. They said, what, they brought us up there to this empty place with not this, you know, sort of abandoned estate. And they said, you know, what would you, what is a playwright? We need this, a stage, this, you know, this would be great, you know, to meet other people, you know, to meet people in the theater, you know. And they said, okay, we... And so then they gave us all a date to produce a play. They didn't care what it was. They gave mm-hmm. us a date, and we could f- write a play for the, produce a play of that. And so we went back there that first summer in '66, and I wrote the House of Blue Leaves for that first summer. Wow! Act one. I wrote Act one in 1966, which has not changed a bit. It took me almost five years to write the second act because I didn't have the craft to mm-hmm. handle that many people. But the O'Neill was spectacular because it was people run by Lloyd, but people like. Uh, Harold Clerman were there and, you know, and Bobby Lewis and uh, extraordinary people from the group theater were there and Edward Albee would come. And it was just the life. The, it was a very – the vitality. You really felt that uh, you were in a uh, remark. you felt you were in the theater for the first time. Your first visit to Broadway was not a smash success. I'll say. No, but – How but, did you get there? This well, it was a play. I'll tell you something. It was, it, it was all – there were two actors that I loved, uh, Ron Liebman and Linda Lavin, who did not know each other. And I wrote a play for them and they met on the first day of rehearsal and subsequently got married and nothing good happened out of the play. And then somebody thought it was a two-character play and somebody had – I won't even go into names, but people had – the money to do it on Broadway but not off-Broadway. I think it was some sort of cover for some tax write-off <laughs> or something. Anyway, we did it and it was – the thing – we got absolutely atrocious reviews. But what really irritated me was about five weeks later at the end of the season, they, then they would have the variety poll, you know, best actor, best player, you know. But, and uh, And out of – and I was named the best new player out of the season for mm. that. Well, that really startled me because I said, no, wait a minute. I was sort of crucified five weeks before, but now I'm the best new player of the season. So it was just, it may be ready for the bipolarness, uh, <laughs> the schizo- whatever the schizophrenia the Broadway's. But it, it was an experience I wouldn't have missed for the world. Hmm. Now, we've spoken of Blue Leaves and that that 
got done in 71. The original production was off-Broadway. At the Truck and Warehouse Theater, yes. Um, and then you subsequently got involved in trimming Shakespeare, I guess is the way it started. Well, Mel Shapiro had asked me, who had directed Blue Leaves, had been asked by Joe Papp to do uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona in the park, but mainly it was to be designed for, for the truck. The tr- public theater used to take shows out on a truck and play in the five boroughs. It was the traveling theater. Yeah. And Mel, and they had done all, Joe had done all the plays of Shakespeare. And now they were coming back to Two Gentlemen of Verona and they were going to start over and, and, uh, and, and do this play. And Mel came to me and read it. He said, John, he said, he said, I'm really, Word. He said, I mean, he said, this was a summer of great, there was great racial unrest. And the summer before they had done, um, was it the Scottish play? Uh, and, and they were stoned. The actors would be stoned. You know, You're having stones thrown at them, thrown not at, I don't mean the they, others. Yeah, they I might just want to be clear. Well, they might have been stoned as well. <laughs> but but the, the, the audience threw, the, their lives were in peril. Hmm. And Mel said, if we bring – this is what happened with the Scottish play. If we bring courtly sentiments of love up, you know, Renaissance reflections on, you know, the uh, courtly sentiments of love up to the Bronx and uptown and wherever, he said, you know, we'll have machine guns out after us. So he asked me if I would – because of the, the farce nature that we had worked on in House of Blue Leaves, if I would take this ramshackle – five-act play, Shakespeare's first play. Uh, they're not even sure how, how much of it is his. Uh, because of that, would I take it and shape it into a 90-minute comedy that could travel on the road? And uh, so we worked on it. Mel and I worked on that. And it was great fun. And I, we felt uh, that it was not a sacred text because the text itself was a mongrel. And then at that same time, uh, Galt McDermott was going to be who had composed Hair was going to be the composer in residence in Central Park that summer, and uh, so he said we'd write some songs for the show. We had this idea that if we had songs, that so people wouldn't be put off by the ravishing poetry that shoots that you know that's uh, that two gentlemen is shot through it. That if we had used songs, the lyrics of which to distill the meaning of what they would be hearing in the scene, that the audience would have the meaning of where the scene was headed, and then when they heard the Shakespeare, they would not be put off by the language because hmm. they would know what it was about. It was like subtitles up front. Or, or program notes that were but within the show. Within the show, that's right. And uh, and then those few songs turned into, I don't know, 30 songs. 37, and, I believe. 37, and... Uh, and then we just cast it with Raul Julia and Clifton Davis and, uh, you know, it was just, it was just wonderful. Hmm. But you didn't set out to write a musical. No. It was never conceived of. It just sort of happened. It was fun. It was just something. It was no money. It was just something to do. Hmm. It was just something to do in the park, yes. And then that brought you back to Broadway ultimately yeah. mm-hmm. because that was, you know, such a success. Well, what was interesting also about that is, is that – 
it opened up and got, it was, the response was just remarkable. And people like David Merrick and Sal Hurok wanted to produce it. And it was just wow, wow, wow. And Bernie Gersten, who was the associate producer at the public theater, said to Joe, why give it away the way we gave away here? Why don't we produce it? And Joe said, but well, we've never produced and we're never going to. And Bernie said, but if, listen, he said, the money, why should we give the money away? If we own the show, look what we can do with that money. We're always out here trying to – so there was a woman, Lou Esther Mertz, who gave us then $350,000 is what it cost to uh, open the show on Broadway and uh, back in 71. And uh, so the show opened up and was was a success. And the contract that Bernie devised for not-for-profit theater functioning in a commercial situation is still basically what's being used today. Hmm. And it certainly served them well a few years later when they used that same model for chorus. Absolutely. Line, which, which advantage Or when MDC did uh, Ain't Misbehaving right. or whatever. Yes. So it's uh, – After a big Broadway musical – that wasn't intended to be a big Broadway musical, one might expect that suddenly people would come calling saying, do you want to work on this musical idea or that musical idea? You did not pursue that. Well, they did come to me. Mm -hmm. David Merrick came to me and said he wanted me to do – I could offer it everything. Right. I I would imagine. (laughs) But the thing that really sort of threw me was – I was asked – David Merrick asked me to do a musical version of Arsenic and Old Lace with Ethel Merman and Mary Martin as the two old ladies with a score music by Richard Rogers, and I would write the book and lyrics. And I said, oh my god. And I did not know what to do. I literally hmm. – I, I mean I, I was – and I had to go see David Merrick finally to give my answer. And, and this, I loved this. I loved this story that I came up to David Merrick. David Merrick's office was on the over the St. James Theater. You went up in a rickety elevator, and you went into his office, which was just sort of like this bordello in hell. It was all you know, blood red. He, you know, it was a color red that he copyrighted. He used in all his ads. Did you know that? <laughs> that all his ads he had a color, a color red that is still copyrighted. By day, hmm. that he devised, a purplish red. And I didn't know what I was going to say. And he said, well, and he sat behind his desk. And I s- jumped on his sofa and stretched out on his sofa. And I crossed my hands and I said, doctor, you have to help me. And he said, how can I help you? I said, I keep having delusions that David Merrick uh, has approached me about doing this project is Arsenic and Old Lace with Richard Rogers and Ethel Merwin and Mary Morton. And he said, and what would you, he said, and if you could meet David Merrick, what would you tell him? I'd say, well, you know, I was, I'm very flattered, but I'm really a playwright. And I think this is taking me down a path that I don't want to go. And I'm not even sure if I want to see it, but I don't think, I just would tell him, no, that I, I'm a playwright and I don't want to do this. And he'd say, well, then, young man, I'd say you were cured. And I stood up and I shook his hand. I said, thank you, doctor. And I left. And I love David Merrick for that. I, for, for going, I just thought it was such a cl- – I, I love the whole scene. But you created a scene. You almost had to play a character to tell David Merrick. Well, that's right. You, were you afraid of him? I mean he was a formidable figure. Not in the least. Hmm. 
No, because he was so friendly. It was all <laughs> – it was the whole thing. There was no fear about it. They were trying – he was trying to hmm. – uh, also, don't forget, in the, before this, I had been <laughs> discovered for a musical. I had already been through Jerry Robbins and Leonard Bernstein for a, you know, for a year of my life in 1968. Uh, with? Hmm? With what show? It was an adaptation of a Breck play. This was called A Prey by Black. A Prey by Black, a place on the exception of the rule. And uh, I had a play done at the O'Neill called Musica. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it went out to, to the uh, Mark Taper and became a big success at the Mark mm-hmm. Taper. Great. Well, Prey by Black, I was going to ask you about just because it's, it's an interesting note. Score by Stephen Sondheim at one point? No, no, no. no. Lyrics, by, lyrics, lyrics by, by Stephen Sondheim. Music by Leonard Bernstein. Oh, oh, my, my mistake. Yes. But, but it, that- was, it was for which I earned his undying hatred. Who's? But Arthur Lawrence because he was excluded. It was the first time the West Side Story team had been reassembled minus Arthur. Uh-huh. And I was, the, I was the new book writer. Mm. Let's jump past um, – the uh, I mean, after, after that, mm-hmm. I was no longer David Merrick. You could after you've survived a year with with, with Jerry <laughs> Robinson and, and Lenny. Uh, um, the, the fear of uh, D- David Merrick is uh, is hardly a creature to be feared. Let's jump past two gentlemen of Verona and arsenic and old lace. You did develop a relationship with the public theater, which over a series of years in the late 70s, we're seeing your plays premiering there fairly regularly um, because Rich and Famous, Marco Polo Sings a Solo, what I did was, Landscape of the Body um, were all public theater shows. Yeah. Well, before what I had done was after, after Two Gentlemen opened in Chicago uh, – I mean, after it opened in London, it had, a, it had a big opening in London. And I came back and I just said, I'm a playwright, I'm a player, and I don't have a play. And I said, I'm not going to land until I finish the first act of a play. So I wrote the first act, the rough draft of first act of Marco Polo Sings a Solo in the plane flying back from London to, uh, uh, to New York. And, uh, and then through this man, I, uh, who called me, asked me if I would do House of Blue Leaves at Nantucket uh, with the original cast because he had the money for it. I said, no, but I said, I have a new play. And so I went – you know, and something my father had said at the Cappuccino was the only play my, my, my father saw was when he came to the Cappuccino. I'm just jumping back. And he said – what he hated, was embarrassed about, was that after the performance of the Chino, the playwright and the director and the actors passed the hat among the audience. Hmm. My father was horrified at that. And he said, I've got an idea. He said, why don't you write, instead of collecting the, passing the basket, why don't you write a hit musical and then you'll have enough money and you can come back to the Cafe Chino and you don't have to pass the hat. And I said, oh, crazy, leave me, you know, you know, it was a stupid idea. Well, when I came, was coming back from London, I realized that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go back to the Cappuccino. And so we started a theater in, in Nantucket that, uh, where I lived for a couple of years. Hmm. And we did this play, Marco Polo Sings a Solo. And, uh, and then it was, uh, after two gentlemen, I didn't want to work at the public. Hmm. I didn't. Joe Papp and I didn't get along very well. 
And then I did a play at uh, out in Chicago. Then I started working in Chicago. There was a wonderful name, Bill Gardner, at a theater called the Academy Festival Theater, where they they did things like Moon for the Misbegotten with uh, Jason Robards and Colleen Dewhurst and Sweet Bird of Youth with uh, Irene Worth and Little Foxes uh, with Rip Torn and Geraldine Page. It was a remarkable theater. And I worked out I, – I did I did Rich and Famous out there. And then the play was done at Williamstown and uh, – at one matinee, Bernie Gerson came to the uh, came to Williamstown. I said, "What's he doing here?" Because I liked Bernie a lot, but I had not seen him. And, hmm. and then the next day, he said, "I got a call from them saying, please come in and see Joe Papp.'" At the and next, you know, I came back and he said, "You should be working here." Hmm. And so uh, we made up after after two gentlemen of Verona, and uh, Joe behaved terribly during it. And so then. I worked and I became playwright in residence in 75 and I did Marco Polo and uh, Rich and Famous and uh, Landscape of the Body. And then I was going to do Bosoms and Neglect and I just could not bear to work there anymore. Hmm. And uh, this guy, Gregory Moshe, was starting – who ran the Goodman in Chicago was starting a new theater uh, where it's now 79 – and uh, he wanted David Mamet and me to be the directors of the theater, a theater, a theater, a branch of the uh, Goodman Theater that would just be doing new work. And I said, "Wow, well, that's sort of great." So they did, you know, we, we did put some neglect out there. And then after that came uh, that was done on Broadway with Kate Reed and was lasted a week. And then I went up to Stratford in Canada and was terrific. And then I went back, moved back to Nantucket where I wrote these Lighty Breeze plays. Well, I want to ask about Lighty Breeze because there are really three related plays that yeah. you wrote over a period yeah. of years. The challenge of doing interlinked plays that would take you know a lot of resources to get them Well, done. I did it because I, in Bosoms and Neglect, which is a play about – New York City and psychoanalysis and relations with parents and relations and with – And three actors as And I three recall. actors, yes. And I realized that – I love the play. I love doing the play. But I realized at the same time that I was drawing out of the same pool of water that a lot of other writers were drawing out of New York City now, you know. And I wanted a world that was entirely mine. And I went to Nantucket and something – I had an experience happen there that that I started writing these plays about life in 1895. I wanted to know plays in the year my parents were born. I wanted to write plays about a time about which I knew nothing. I wanted to go back into the past and find a new way to have to speak. I wanted to paint myself into a corner. I wanted to take away everything that I could do easily by that point. I just wanted to put myself – live in a brand new house. I wanted to write out of a brand new house where I had to find out what people knew, didn't know, what they could have known, what they'd be interested in. It was a great experience. Hmm. And I didn't start out to write the trilogy but I wrote the first play and then in telling the actors when we did the first production about the lives of these people, what had got them to this point, I said, well, I, I'll write another play and tell you about that. And then I, the, the plays were written backwards. Mm-hmm. Each play chronologically, they were written chronologically in reverse. Mm-hmm. Each one telling what had happened before the situation. So the this is where backstory was very interesting very to much you. So. That's right, hmm. very much so. You revisited those plays, three uh, plays, 
in I think about 2000 the two of the for, two of for the New plays. York Theater Workshop. It, it, two of the plays. Mm-hmm. Beth Morrow, yes, we did. I, and I rewrote uh, – there were some things I wanted to – I did some minor rewrites on the play. And, but I, Beth Marvel wanted to – found the plays mm-hmm. and wanted to do them. And yes, so it was great to go back. And, but, but at that same time, that's how I met David Cromer who had done all the three Lottie Breeze. He's done all of them twice in Chicago. Hmm. That's what first brought us together. A lot of playwrights say once the play is done, it's done. Why did you feel the need to – Revisit any aspect of the plays uh, at that point almost I'll 20 you, years later. I'll tell you something. I did not like the title of the second play, Gardenia, and I did not like the title. Mm-hmm. I felt the title was just not – at the time, it was resonant for me, but personally, it didn't – it sounded more like something for, for Billy Holiday or something. And there was an action at the end of the first act that I never liked. I just didn't get it right. And I suddenly saw these people from this community of, you know, noble thing. They were, they were going to form a troop of actors to go into uh, factories to free the workers. And they were going to perform scenes from Bullfinch's mythology to show the uh, – in the original Gardenia, they were going to go in to do Shakespeare to the masses. And it sounded just sort of elite and phony. And I realized that I wanted them to be really very much activists. I wanted them to write these, uh, these Breck plays they're taking into the audience. And they were going to take uh, Bullfinch's mythology, this American, you know, 19th century classic, and uh, Americanizing the, the myths to show the people that they were of mythic size. When I found that, I said, that's where act one of my play has to go, not doing Shakespeare for the masses, but doing this, making those politically active. And so I changed the play and changed the title of the play. So most of the time, I think that a play belong, you know, the play belongs to the time it's written. And but this is a case in those Lottie Breeze plays where there were just some minor, some adjustments I made that involved uh, changing the events at the end of the first act, and also seeing the two plays running together, they fed off each other in a way that I had never seen before. Hmm. So that just it was just taking advantage of things. Jumping ahead, and it's probably a story you've told many times, but Six Degrees of Separation was inspired by an actual incident of a young man who had been in New York passing himself off as the son of Sidney Poitier. At what point did you decide there's a play in this? I didn't know. I was in 1983. I was working in London, as a matter of fact, on Women in Water, the third play in in uh, the Lady Breeze. I hate the word trilogy, but the third play, the first play in it. And uh, with this wonderful director, Carol Rice, whom I loved. Directed the French Lieutenant's Woman. That's right. Yes, he was a dear friend, great friend. We were working on it in London. And I got a call from friends of mine in London. They said, John, we've just arrived. We've just arrived. And we've got to see you. I said, is anything wrong? Well, they said, well, just something has happened to us. We don't, can't figure out. We've got to see you. We'll see you tonight for dinner. So we met that night for dinner. And they told me about this mysterious event a couple that happened to them a few nights before that a young man, Sidney Poitier's son, came to their house and they took him in and they had a fantastic night and then something horrible happened during the night and they threw him out and then they, the children said, well, we never heard of him. We, you know, we were tricked. And they said, what do you make of this? I mean, what, what, what is it we can't find? We don't know. What is it? I mean, what do you think it is? And I just said, wow. I mean, so they told me. I said, well, that's – but I didn't think anything of it. I came back to America about three months later. There was a story in the New York Post about – 
imposter arrested in some crime, Sidney Poitier's son. And I said, oh, that's the guy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1989, now it's almost, you know, five and a half years later, I was working on another play very intently, working, working, working. And I suddenly started realizing I was typing things like Suzanne's shoes and – I mean Suzanne's apples and Van Gogh's shoes and and Sidney Poitier. And, and I realized that unbeknownst to me that that had – that story had been germinating, had been hmm. – Germinating without making it sound too much like Santa's workshop. Those, they've been germinating inside me. And I wrote the play. I mean, I said, well, Sidney Poitier, you have any sons? And I went up to the Strand bookstore and I got a Sidney Poitier's autobiography and his memoir. No, he doesn't have any, he only has four daughters. And I ran back and that went into the play, you know. And, uh, I wrote the play very quickly and that was that. I had not in, ever intended to write a play. It, it just struck me. And that's in a sense what the life of a writer is, is waiting to be there for those moments to, to catch it when it happens. Hmm. Six Degrees was an enormous success, had a great run, turned into a film. With that kind of success, was it something that had an impact on – you either personally or in what you thought about doing next. No. It just was another play in the career. I mean, when you start, when you go into rehearsals on a play, the first thing you do is you have to have a play ready to go to for the day after the opening. That if it's a disaster, you want to have something to jump into. If it goes mixed, you want to have something to go in. If it's a success, God help us, you want to keep your bearings and have something to get get back into. I felt uh, just at home in my life, yes. Hmm. And then we did uh, – I was very lucky. I mean I just felt yeah. it was a nice success. I mean there were death threats and we got involved in horrible law cases. The guy, the subject of the play – issued death threats against hmm. me and it was it turned into a lawsuit and it was, it was we were on trial on television it was awful well, that can be distracting too and that was awful. Uh, frightening that, of course but frightening. distracting from the work anything you would want to do next. yeah yeah that that took that was, that was the time but anyway it was just it was just it was six degrees was a wonderful adventure hmm I want to jump ahead and ask you about the work at Signature Theater where there was a season of your work yeah. and where they've done and then even also went back and there was some new work even subsequent to well, the that's John the, be Gwar's the best thing season. about Signature is that it looks back on, you know, in a playwright's alleged life. And, uh, but they're also not committed to the past. They also – to work there, you have to give them a new play as well. You know, you have to – they're interested in developing new work. So Jim Houghton is, uh, is just a uh, – one of the most important people, you know, in my life, along with Bernie Gersten and Edward Albee, and uh, you, you know, it's yes, Gregory Motion, Andre Bishop, yes. Well, the new play that you did there, Lake Hollywood. Well, yeah. the first of the new plays, because yeah. you subsequently did another. But Lake Hollywood, as I understand it, drew upon material from one of your very earliest Not plays. Not drew upon it. It was my play I did for Edward Albee was the second act. When I was very young, I wrote a play with these old people having one last – the last time they're going to be out. With the catchy name to Wally Pantone, Pantone, we, we leave, leave a credenza. credenza. 
What, what had happened was we were going to do uh, 1998. This is before Beth Marvel. Signature wanted to end the season with the Lighty Breeze plays, to do two, if not all three of them. And a couple of months before we were going to start, Jim just said, it's beyond our capabilities. It's too big to do. Do you have anything else? And I said, well, no. But wait a minute. I said, I did have this play that when I was very young, I wrote about these very old people, you know, on the last day that they'd be out. And I just said, what about if I wrote the first act would be about this, this young couple on their first date, on their first, when they're, when they're 50 years between the two acts. So I wrote the first act when I was trying to get old about these young people. So the first act was, uh, yes, what became the picture of an American marriage. Huh. So they're in the play – 50 years elapses between yeah. the two acts, but it had been, if I have the chronology right, roughly 39 years yeah. between the time you wrote the acts, uh-huh. but again, sort of did it backwards. backwards. It was the second act that you wrote That's 39 right. years earlier, yeah. and then you created the yeah. backstory yeah. to the act. Yeah. Fascinating. And did you do much work to the original play? Yes. I mean, not a hell of a lot, but I mean, I did – yes, there was a I, – I added a plot that had been formed in the uh, in the first act. Hmm. Uh, had to be resolved in the second act. Hmm. You ventured into musicals again uh-huh. with Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah. I'm wondering about the experience of tackling material. I mean, that's a screenplay that people have been quoting for years. It's, I just it, loved it. I can remember when I was in college, see, I just loved it. And the fact of having the chance to work with Nick Heitner, who's a director I had admired tremendously, and Bob Crowley to work with them. Yeah, I said, why not? Hmm. Do you like adapting? You also did an adaptation of His Girl Friday. Well, again, that was for Nick Heitner. But what it was, we're doing that on the Trinity Rep in September. This was a puzzle because Nick in like 2002, was starting his reign at the at the National Theater. And his first show was going to be Henry V as if it was being covered by CNN. And for it, to be paired with it, he wanted a comedy about the media. And he had this idea to take the play of the front page and the movie of His Girl Friday, which is a t- version to take on His Girl Friday with a sex change, and put them together hmm. and come up with a third entity of a His Girl Friday for the stage. Hmm. And it was so imp- – I wanted to work in the National Theater. That was the reason why I did it. I wanted to work in the National. And Jack O'Brien would direct it. And we didn't get the rights until virtually uh, it was scheduled, but the rights were held to get. And we didn't get them until, say, like end of October, beginning of November, and we had to start rehearsals three months later. So I had to write it in three months. Wow. And I loved it. I, and it was just – and to have that many people on stage. And I also wanted the experience of working with that many people. So hmm. it was a great – and I'm still working on it. It's a – it's – I'm doing – finally, I, as a matter of fact, today, June 16th, 2011, I've just sent off to Trinity Rep a final draft of the play. There were some aspects of the play that I could never get the time to solve or just could not figure out. Hmm. There was so much to do. So, uh, yeah, so it's a play I'm still working on today. I've just sent it off today. Hmm. In reading up on you, I found an interview from when you had visited um, Loyola uh, 
down in New Orleans uh, in 2002 and there's a quote. You're asked about might there be a New Orleans play in Guerra's future. Your response was, well, you go to a city and you don't know what to expect and New Orleans intrigues me so. Oh, I, I have no recollection of saying <laughs> that. I don't, I've never even seen that interview. Well, clearly – it predates Free Man of Color. Very much, yes, New Orleans somehow stuck with you. Yeah. I spoke with George Wolf a couple of months ago about Free Man of Color. I'm wondering if you could tell me how it came about for you. George Wolf. It was George's idea. He George said it. he wanted to take a, uh, a restoration comedy and for Jeffrey Wright a kind of part that that he would be brilliant to play that he never gets a chance to play and but to set it in New Orleans at a time there are no racial boundaries before it becomes American and uh, did I have any interest in that so I went off and started doing research and I came back two years later with a free man of color had you ever had the experience of somebody suggesting a play idea to you well Nick Heitner in uh, oh. In His Girl Friday. But there there was existing material. Yeah. Here it was, as you say, there, the restoration comedy never, idea never. was there. But that wasn't something – because you say people get asked all the time, where do you get your ideas? Yeah. Well, here's somebody who gave you a somewhat specific idea, a, a place, specific, yes. an actor, and the idea of resetting and genre, restoration and a, comedy. And a, yes, in restoration comedy and in a historical setting. And it was uh, – again, it seemed to be so impossible that I just said – what a thrill. I mean, it seemed to be all areas that I love to work in. After uh, Lighty Breeze, and I had also written a play. Oh, George had asked me to do this. It came to me because I had written a play about the death of Ulysses S. Grant, a comedy this called Fused Out Individuals. Individuals, that I had sent to George to direct, and he couldn't do it at the time, but hmm. he liked the play, and he asked me if I... He came and he said, did I want to write another play about American history? Hmm. And I said, yeah, I mean, I, you know, but it was... So again, it was a period about which I knew nothing, about which I knew nothing. And the more I got into it, making it be very, very specific, honing in on the Louisiana Purchase and all the facts around the Louisiana Purchase, the forces coming in on New Orleans, this little idea, shattering, this little perfectly ordered world. It was, uh, yes, so, you know, it was, you know, as George said, he said, I asked you to do a little, you know, restoration comedy, you know, said in New Orleans, and you came back and you gave me Ben Hurd, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, but it, the play, it was thrilling. It was one of the great trips of my life. Hmm. It was a great – it was one. It was a fantastic experience. Sometimes at the end of an interview, I ask, is there something you can talk about next? But you – it's already been announced that you're going to be doing a new play at the McCarter. At the McCarter, up, yeah. Cool. Uh, are, you there? are you there, McPhee, directed by Sam Buntrock? Are you willing to tell us anything about it? Well, it just takes place when I – it's about Nantucket. It's when I lived in Nantucket. Hmm. It's a little fantasia on uh, – on uh, no, I'm not. Willing to, no. <laughs> I was very careful because yes, when you yes, ask yes, it definitively, yes, yes. you get a definitive yes. no. Yes. Well, it sounds like between uh, his girl Friday and Are You There, McPhee? You'll have a busy fall and spring coming up. Right, because well, they're done. So I'm, I, I'm deep in a new play. Oh, already? Yes. Hmm. So. Uh, I won't dare ask you what that's about. Don't. Because <laughs> that's not even in the subscription grocery <laughs> yes. somewhere yet. So let me just say I know that we've talked about a lot 
we haven't even been able to touch on some of your work. But John Guare, thank you so much for spending time with me today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we're a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.